Welcome to WOMA's series on Occupational Environmental Medicine Updates with this week's session on Cal-OSHA Guidance for Employee and Workplace Safety During COVID-19. My name is Dr. David Corretto, and I am today's moderator. WOMA is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. We have designed these WOMA podcasts to be a tool and a benefit for WOMA members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians. The WOMA Education Committee members involved in the planning of this session have no relevant financial relationships to disclose, and neither does today's speaker. By now, we have become very familiar with social distancing as one widespread strategy for suppression of COVID-19. In keeping with social distancing mandates from local and state officials, in April of 2020, up to 42 states and 90% of the U.S. population were under official stay-at-home orders lasting several weeks. This led to the closure of workplaces across our nation. Now as states begin to lift these orders and workplaces reopen, employers are looking to advice on how to maintain a safe workplace for their employees and the general public amongst the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Today we are speaking with Dr. Paul Papanek, who will share with us the Cal-OSHA guidance for promoting workplace safety during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Papanek is a graduate of UCSD Medical School and completed both his family medicine residency and his MPH degree at UCLA. He is board certified in occupational medicine and has served as a public health chief for Los Angeles County Health Department for nine years and as chief of occupational medicine at the Kaiser Hospital in Los Angeles for 15 years. He is currently a public health medical officer with Cal OSHA and has served on the WOMA and ACOM boards. Dr. Papanek, welcome to today's WOMA's podcast. Nice to hear from As, you, David. We're glad you're here. As mentioned in the introduction, employers are beginning to reopen their workplaces but remain concerned about protecting their employees from COVID 19. Cal OSHA requires employers covered by the aerosol transmissible diseases standard to protect employees from airborne infectious diseases such as COVID-19. What type of employers does the ATD standard typically apply to? Right. So, so Cal-OSHA has posted um, guidance. If you just Google up Cal-OSHA COVID, you'll see a number of guidance statements. And there's guidance particularly for what employers have to do to keep their workers safe from COVID. And um, those those requirements are split into two big buckets. First of all, employers that are covered by the aerosol transmissible disease standard, the ATD standard, have to do a fair amount. And of course, the ATD standard is the, the standard that protects healthcare workers and other public safety workers from exposure to airborne pathogens. And that doesn't include COVID, but it includes other things like measles and tuberculosis. So in the scope of that, every hospital knows that they're covered by ATD. Uh, I we have learned that uh, a lot of doctors' offices may not be aware that they're also covered. So if you're a, a primary care uh, medical office uh, and you see patients who can present with acute infectious diseases, the standard also applies to you. Now you don't have to do everything that's in the standard, but you but physicians' offices really do have to have a procedure in place to identify folks who may be walking in with COVID or some other um, aerosol transmissible disease and and then protect the workers downstream from getting infected by those patients. And that means having surgical masks for source control on the sick patient 
and having a, an N95 mask available uh, or better uh, on healthcare workers who are going to be in, in immediate proximity. So, so medical law, medical clinics, emergency rooms are covered. Um, probably also aware that uh, correctional facilities, homeless shelters, drug treatment programs, those are also roped in under that standard uh, because we've learned that those kinds of facilities tend to have a higher rate of these aerosol transmissible risks than do uh, the general public. Now, for for non for workplaces not covered under under the ATD standard, um, then the, the kind of the general duty, the, the injury and illness prevention program, is what counts. I mean, that's real. That's very interesting because I think oftentimes when we think of the ATD standard, um, our first thought is to hospital and inpatient facilities. But to really have that understanding that this encompasses all outpatient facilities and that masking is part of a hierarchy of controls and a plan that these outpatient clinics have to have, um, I think is a great reminder as we're thinking about keeping workplaces safe. Yeah, what advice? Right. And I was going to say, and just let me uh, ask that if, if Calish ever were to do an inspection in your medical office, one of the things that we would ask is we would walk up to your receptionist and say uh, to the receptionist, pretend that I'm a patient with coughing and sneezing and fever, and uh, and I, that's what I tell you I'm here for. Uh, if the if the receptionist doesn't immediately say, oh well, thank you for checking in today. Please, here's a surgical mask. Please put this on, and I will notify the nurse who's going to take you to the back to put on an N95 that you should put on an N. He or she should put on an N95. If you don't have that procedure in place, that's an OSHA violation. So it's I, I think some some offices don't realize that that's that's what they really have to be doing. Thank you. That's an excellent reminder. What advice for infection prevention measures do you have for employers not covered by the ATD standard? So there's um, you know there's a lot of guidance out there now. So and, and by the way, we know that plenty of workplaces that have public facing employees are clearly at risk, and then other kinds of workplaces. So we've certainly seen high rates of COVID transmission in uh, meatpacking plants, and we're aware of that we're doing some inspections on that in California now and bus drivers and it turns out school teachers um, let me just add that there's a, a nice little publication um, uh, uh, from a, a couple of days ago uh, and we'll put this up on the on the website kind of uh, outlining increased risk of COVID infection in a whole broad range of um, of occupations, and um, this was in the World Economic Forum on April 20th. And of course, our concern is that we know that the workers with lower socioeconomic status, uh, temporary workers, have less ability to protect themselves from COVID. So, so for for workplaces that that um, may have a, a public facing workforce. Um, they should look at those at those guidance statements, and some of the some of the uh, prescriptions that are in that are are really very specific. And in particular, uh, workplaces should have as part of their written injury and illness prevention program that they uh, will train and do train their workers, for example, on infection control control practices. 
among those practices should be that if you're sick, you don't come to work. We we want to see employers training their employees uh, explicitly that we don't want you showing up for work sick. And uh, and what to do to protect yourself, frequent hand washing um, for workplaces, and it's most of them now who have uh, where work of a worker transmission is an issue. Face coverings, and and so that really should be part of uh, part of employer training, and should be documented. Well, thanks for bringing up the World Economic Forum paper. I, that would be something we would love to take a look at. Um, and credit to Cal OSHA for presenting um, and placing on their website the guidance on requirements to protect workers from coronavirus. There's a lot of great industry-specific information and links among um, different places of employment uh, there. Now, as society anticipates a reopening of businesses and workplaces, with this reopening comes um, an increased risk of COVID-19 exposure to employees in public-facing jobs, as you mentioned earlier. Can you describe a little bit more specifically about the injury and illness prevention program and how these measures can keep employees and their workplaces safe? Yeah, this is and this is something that, which, uh, frankly, I don't think the nation or the state has ever had to face before. This is a brand new problem that we're asking employers uh, to team up with with us and the general public and public health agencies to do. So this is a new challenge. It's an important challenge, but you know, sort of the basic wisdom of, of occupational medicine, David, and we all know this and we say it, but it has real implications, which is employers, and it's, it's a requirement in California, employers have to assess the risks uh, to their workforce, uh, reasonably anticipated risks. And so if you're going to reopen uh, a workplace and have members of the public come in, you you have to have a written plan that shows that you've, you've thought through how you're going to protect your your people, and that some of the the things that I think are becoming important, and we're realizing this as as our experience with uh, sadly with workplaces who haven't thought this through very well, are that um, the governor's executive orders and federal legislation uh, play an important role. For example, everybody knows uh, you may know about uh, Governor Newsom's executive order 51. Uh, which was passed on March 4th of 2020, having to do with, with food, uh, establishments. And that, that act covers any, uh, um, covers employees working for companies with 500 or fewer employees and says that if you get sick, um, the state's going to provide you with, uh, sick leave benefits. So that, that executive order erases any disincentive you'd have to report an illness. Well, that's something that, that employers should be taking into account. They should be telling their employees that, that this benefit exists. So even if the company, perhaps a small company, doesn't happen to have sick leave benefits, that's no excuse not to have workers report that they're having symptoms and absent themselves from the workplace. Similarly, for uh, you know yesterday's executive order, this is hot off the press, but the Governor Newsom's Order 62 on workers' comp. So it's now you know automatic for a large number of of um, workplaces in California that if you get COVID and you say, "What am I going to do? I I don't want to let the employer know that I've got COVID. I don't want to let the employer know that perhaps I got tested and then positive." No, the work you are covered. You are automatically covered for workers' comp for at least sixty days, and then maybe extended. 
So employers should take a look at their current personnel policies and make sure that they uh, are sharing the fact that there are, are incentives for workers to do the right thing. Um, uh, additionally, for non-food service workers, they, you know, con- Congress passed the Families First Coronavirus uh, Response Act on April 1st, and that uh, requires uh, paid sick leave uh, for a broad class of, of workers. And so the fact that employees are entitled to these benefits should be part of the employer's personnel policies and training as they reopen. And that's, of course, in addition to the other kinds of precautions. We really do want everybody to social distance. We really do want them to be wearing a face covering. And, of course, everybody know on this call will know that it's worth reemphasizing that the face covering is not to protect the, the, the wearer, it's to protect their buddy because we have now seen, and I'll tell you within Cal OSHA, we've seen it over and over again. The It appears that a great majority of COVID cases are asymptomatic. Um, we've just done an inspection in a, in a facility that I won't uh, tell more detail about. But we've got at least 100 COVID positive people and fewer than 20 are symptomatic. So we, we know that You've got to wear these face coverings because you don't know that you, everybody has to presume that they have COVID even if they feel perfect and terrific so they don't give it to their, to their buddy. So those are, those are some things that employers may want to think about that they've never had to think, uh, to think about before. Well, and I think that's just overall excellent advice in general. I, as this, discussion and this response is fluid, it's very easy to silo our, our strategies to uh, illicit prevention strategy, a legal strategy, a benefit strategy. But really what you're advocating for is by doing the right thing through the measures of an injury and illness prevention program, you are actually encompassing all these other aspects of uh, worker worker health and safety. And that's to the employer's benefit to be able to think about things as a comprehensive system. Yeah, yeah, they have to take the big picture view. They really do. That's right. Um, now, you know, we, we know about retail, grocery stores, construction, agriculture. Um, Meatpacking has recently come to the fore. Are there any other hotspots or industries that Cal OSHA is concerned about and actively monitoring? Well, nursing homes and group homes are obviously huge, and I, I don't know that the nation is getting much closer to getting a handle on how we're going to protect our elderly and vulnerable folks living in these long-term care facilities. Of course, nursing homes are covered under the ATD standard, but uh, group homes and board and cares are not, but they still clearly, you know, very high risk. Um, it's To me, it, 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 you mentioned meatpacking, and it, it's really interesting. I don't know that we know what is it about meatpacking that makes COVID take off like wildfire in those facilities. Does it, does it have something to do with the power tools? The fact that you're, that if there is some uh, droplets that fall into the work zone, that the fact that you're using a power tool tends to aerosolize the infectious material. Is that what's going on? There's something about the, the environment otherwise, but clearly meatpacking plants are an enormous problem. And we now have evidence about public, public transportation, uh, so bus drivers, um, we are afraid that some grocers and delivery folks may also be at risk. So uh, I, this may be an opportunity to mention, you know, one of the interesting gaps in our public health surveillance system that some of our listeners may know about. But 
You know, to me, it's it's interesting that when uh, case reports of infectious diseases get made to the state health department in California, of course, uh, and all the other states, and then of course the states who get those reports forward them along by way of a formal quote notification close quote notification system to the CDC. Occupational information does not flow along with the other information, and that's an astonishing pre-existing gap in America's knowledge. So uh, people may be aware that um, ACOM and, and some other public health organizations, the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, has been working uh, hard in the last uh, several weeks to see if we can't quickly get better data, national data, on what's the what are, what's the industry and occupation of COVID patients. Um, we, we're not collecting that. We should be collecting that. And frankly, we know that we should be collecting it for other kinds of reportable diseases as well. So hopefully COVID will, will teach the nation something about how to be better epidemiologists. Certainly. And in drilling down on that specific job factors that could lead or increase one's risk for transmission of the disease, um, certainly that can inform how we do social distancing or versus reopening of various industries. And, you know, along those lines, the COVID-19 pandemic is expected to be with us for at least through fall 2020. What other aspects of workplace safety should be considered by employers as our response evolves in the months ahead? And what would you recommend to occupational medicine physicians to be doing in this response? Yeah, this is, you know, that's a great question. And and this really, I think, is occupational medicine's moment. And, and I hope that uh, organizations, WOMA and ACOM, will, will take advantage of the fact that, that occupational physicians have a real role in assisting employers to think through these problems. I mean, if we are the ones with the expertise in, in population management. Um, uh, do we need some sort of stronger either regulatory approach or public health approach that says that when workplaces are a, themselves a risk for uh, transmission of, of infectious diseases like COVID, shouldn't an occupational health professional be part of the management of that of that uh, employer? And I think the answer is we now know yes. Um, and we push ourselves forward to, to play that role. I hope we will. Um, I would say that it's sort of interesting thinking about, you know, what are the opportunities that we have and and, and what what are what should our kind of biases be as we help employers open up? One of the things that is to me is still an astonishing thing is that we learn that every time we push hard to do more testing of workforces or populations, we learn important new information. So my view is that they're really that occupational positions should push this bias toward being actively doing surveillance. We should, once, once you know that a workplace appears to be at risk, we should be testing frequently and broadly in those workplaces. And although we may not be able to know exactly how an individual test applies to the risk for this worker, knowing what the whole population's uh, current status is, is of huge importance. In fact, I, we've been wrestling with the problem of should we should we be encouraging, for example, serum banking? Um, if you knew that you had a workforce of a hundred people who were likely to get COVID or be exposed to COVID, 
wouldn't we love to have serum in the bank saved against the time that in future we have really great antibody tests? So you can know at the beginning what was the prevalence rate of, of antibody uh, and later at a later time again, how did the infection move through your population? So I hope that we in occupational medicine will have a bias towards using you know clinical prevention tools and will push for uh, you know act- activism in this activism and and fast action has been our friend our public health friend at almost every step in the current covid pandemic um I guess one other thing I would say David and I know that idea about serum banking is a uh, one that we haven't seen guidance from CDC on, but it's, uh, I can't think of why that won't be a, a very helpful thing down the road if, in certain populations. But I think, um, occupational medicine also has it, one of its roles to, to advocacy. And we know now that we need much better, uh, public health reporting. We need, we need a stronger public health infrastructure. We know that occupational medicine needs to be at the table when infectious disease reporting and infectious disease management uh, are are being discussed, so so um, advocacy, piping up, speaking out loudly to get occupational medicine more broadly into infection control uh, in America's workplaces, I think is our that's our role. It's our moment. It's our opportunity. Those are excellent recommendations, and certainly. Um, food for thought as we continue the discussions ahead over the weeks and months ahead. Dr. Papanek, I want to thank you for providing us with the most up-to-date guidance from Cal OSHA on requirements to keep workers safe from COVID-19. I know many of our physicians and employers will find this information useful, and we will continue to follow any additional updates. Cal OSHA has developed general and industry-specific guidance, including guidance for skilled nursing homes and long-term care facilities, child care, agriculture, and construction, among others, and we will provide the links on our website for anyone to view. On behalf of the Wilma Education Committee, the Wilma Board of Directors, and myself as moderator of this podcast, I want to sincerely thank our speaker, Dr. Paul Papanak, and also thank all of you who had listened. The goal of these Wilma podcasts is to update you on a topic of current interest to occupational medicine. We know that this topic raises many more questions, and we hope that this information will generate further interaction beyond this podcast. Thank you.